Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And we have gotten so many, so, so many listener requests to talk about the history of a specific color. Um, most recently, it was Nicole who asked us to talk about the creation of the color mauve. And before that, we had Baruch who asked us to talk about Tellet, which is a blue dye that's really important in the Jewish tradition. Uh, he wrote an entire book on that one, and he sent us a review copy of it about a year ago. I'm absolutely certain we've gotten requests to talk about cochineal red and a general history of the color blue. And I think those must have been on Facebook or Twitter because I can't find them in our inbox. Um, in either of their inboxes, actually, if you've been checking out of our episodes before the very end, our email address now is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. So if you send it to Discovery, we, it, we will not get it. We won't get it. So we also very recently had a listener named Havla ask if we might talk about a general history of color or of dyes. And so that's where we are today. A lot of these other specific requests that people have made of us are going to come up today. Um, but this is sort of an overview of dyes and pigments and how we've been using them during or throughout history. Which I love because I love color and, you know, well, related to and textile it, and art and all the other beautiful yes. things on Earth. The nice, uh, nice follow up to our recent makeup episode. <laughs> Which featured lots of color talk, so it all makes sense. So, uh, animal, vegetable, or mineral could almost be a guessing game about pigments and dyes. People have been using all of these to try to make things prettier all the way back into prehistory. And in most of the world, people have had a lot of them to choose from. If there wasn't a plant source of red, there could be an animal. And if there were neither of those, perhaps they had a mineral that they could source for red color. So to start... Ochre, which is made of iron oxide, is found abundantly all over the planet. Iron oxide itself is one of the Earth's most common minerals, and ochre is probably the thing that people used uh, to make their clothing and surroundings more colorful before they used anything else. That was probably the first pigment. And ochre produces a range of earthy, kind of yellow-brown to red-brown colors. It was used in some of the world's oldest cave paintings, so when you imagine those, you can pretty quickly conjure what ochre looks like and what the various levels of uh, saturation of it look like. And it was also used in textiles. We have evidence that prehistoric peoples also used it to dye animal skins. And while it's been used all over the world throughout history, in particular, the Maori of New Zealand have traditionally used ochre extensively. They've used it on their faces and hair, on their canoes and homes, and on the bones of the dead. There's also, in the yellow family, saffron, which comes from the dried stigmas of crocuses. Um... This makes really rich yellows and oranges, and one of its most recognizable uses as a dye is in the garments of Buddhist monks. Saffron has a really long history of its own. It could almost go in the later part of this episode when we're going to be talking about a few colors that have a longer history. Uh, but just as much of its history is about being a spice and a medicine as it is about being a dye. Just having a moment where I'm remembering my mom's awesome saffron bread as we talk about that. <laughs> saffron, saffron rice is also delicious. Oh, so good. Uh, matter root can make all kinds of shades of reds and yellows. Cinnabar, which is a sulfide mineral, has been used to make red as well. 
although it is unfortunately toxic. So is lead, which we also talked about in our cosmetics episode, uh, which has also sometimes been used to make red paints. In Europe, people used woad to make blue and purple dyes for centuries. This is a plant. Uh, that changed in the 17th century when people started importing indigo, which was a superior source of dye from India. India is not the only place where indigo grows, but once it started to catch on in, in Europe, the British started up a number of indigo plantations in India. This made India the main source of indigo for much of Europe. And this sort of led to a cycle of uh, demand and more demand. Um, they would plant plantations and demand would increase and there would be more plantations and, and people were really working themselves to the bone uh, on these indigo plantations. This eventually led to India's Indigo Revolt, which was an uprising by the farmers against the plantations and the uh, European owners of the plantations in 1856 and 1857. Indigo is still used extensively today, though, especially for dyeing denim for your blue jeans. So green tones have come from lichen, fungi, and especially minerals. Copper uh, has been a big one here, but cobalt has also been used to make some shades of green. When it comes to shades of black, there are all kinds of very common things that you can use to make paints and inks out of, including soot, ivory, and bones. But you can't really dye things with most of these because they don't stick to the fabric. For a long time, there was no true black dye. People in Europe would mostly make black fabric by dyeing it a series of other colors, which, uh, unless it was sort of a byproduct of re-dyeing the same gown over and over as it got older, this was just time-consuming and expensive. Yeah, that's even an issue that continues today when people purchase an article of clothing or a piece of fabric and they want to dye it black. Even the commercially available dyes, what you usually get is a very dark purple. Uh, it's very right. tricky to get a, a nice saturated black. And that actually changed uh, this sort of time-consuming, really costly approach to multiple dye layers that they were doing uh, after Europeans started making their way to the Americas, and they actually found a tree that became known as logwood. And the heartwood of logwood is very, very dark, and a true black dye could be extracted from it. Because the primary source of logwood was traders from Spain, this dye was actually banned in England from its introduction there around 1575 all the way to 1673. Parliament claimed that logwood produced colors, quote, of a fugacious character. The Anglo-Spanish War and other tensions between England and Spain probably had a lot more to do with it than whether the dye faded quickly. There are also lots and lots of ways to make white pigments, including chalk, rice, and limestone. And as we also talked about in our makeup episode, lead. Uh, lead is kind of a multi-purpose component, depending on exactly uh, what it's made with and how it's prepared. That's really why there's so much lead-based paint around for so many years. So in most of the world, uh, people have had quite a number of options for making a vast array of colors. But a couple of specific dyes have turned out to have really, really rich stories of their own. And we will talk about those more in just a moment if Tracy would like to take a brief uh, pause for a word from our sponsor. I would. And now we will hop back to the wonderful world of color. One source of red around the world has been insects. The cochineal is a scale insect that's native to Central and South America. Some people also pronounce it cochineal. 
And Europeans got their first glimpse of it thanks to the conquistador Hernan Cortez in the 1500s. The various species of insect used for this dye are all in the genus Dactylopius, although Cortez's soldiers called them Cochinelia cultivata. The females uh, live on prickly pear cactuses. The wind blows them from cactus to cactus when they're still nymphs, and then as they mature, they attach themselves to the cacti. The females are harvested from the cacti and then dried, and then they are crushed and bathed in acid. And a pound of dye contains about 70,000 of these little insects. Some people, in addition to pronouncing cochineal two different ways, also use cochineal and carmine interchangeably. Other people sort of differentiate between cochineal and carmine as two shades of red. Either way, carmine is also made from these same bugs. Soon after Europeans were introduced to these insects, the Habsburgs decided to start up a cochineal business, and they started exporting cochineal back to Spain. And the cochineal trade then spread all over the world. In the 1600s, dyers started figuring out how to modify cochineal to make all kinds of other shades of red. So the demand for it skyrocketed, although occasionally it would dip a little bit thanks to various economic conditions or perhaps wars. Entrepreneurs in Europe kept trying to figure out how to move cochineal production out of the Americas, because in addition to it being pretty expensive to ship these massive loads of uh, of insects across the ocean, this was the height of piracy's golden age, which meant that ships that were carrying this red dye were always at risk uh, in, in the part of the ocean that they needed to cross to get back to Spain. And although the insects themselves live in many parts of the world today, thanks to very deliberate efforts to transplant them, actually getting a usable number of them to grow somewhere else turned out to be really quite a task. Ship after ship left the Americas loaded down with plants and insects, only for something, you know, unfortunate to befall them along the way. Either the insects would die, or their life cycle would be interrupted by the travel, or a well-meaning crew member would destroy those pesky bugs with salt water. Once the insects finally did make it to India, which was uh, really one of one of the places people were hoping they could take off, it was without a crop of cacti for them to live on. They wound up surviving on a similar species that already lived in India. But even so, the Indian cochineal industry really never managed to supplant the American one. India was producing 4,000 pounds of the dye a year by 1797, but pretty much everyone in Europe thought it was vastly inferior to the dye that was coming from Central and South America. And cochineal is still used today. And one of those uses is actually food dye, uh, which is a little bit chagrinning and disturbing to people who don't like the idea of eating bugs. Unless you are allergic to them, there is no health risk in having them in your food. Yeah, I kind of look at that as one of those whenever I have a food revelation about, oh, this is actually a gross thing you've been consuming. I'm like, well... I've consumed it for years. <laughs> right. And cochineal is one of the many things that goes in that category. We also have a few fancy blues to talk about. And I think blue is your favorite color, isn't it? It is. That's not why we're talking about more than one fancy blue, though. 
Uh, Egyptian blue is the oldest man-made blue dye and the oldest man-made dye in general that we know of. Uh, as its name suggests, it got its start in Egypt uh, about 3,000 years ago with the combination of lime, copper oxide, and quartz. And once these were put into a kiln in the right proportions, they were fired down to a fine powder that could be made into paints and dyes. And if you are confused, because earlier we said that ochre was the oldest thing, you can pretty much make an ochre paint out of straight up ochre and something to moisten it with. And this was a much more deliberate combining of multiple ingredients to make a dye. Ultramarine has also been around for a really long time. It is made from lapis lazuli, which was primarily mined in Afghanistan. Making ultramarine from lapis lazuli was an intensely manual process. Powdered mineral would have to be repeatedly kneaded with lye to ultimately make this dye. There's some evidence that the Chinese had access to ultramarine as early as the 8th century BCE. There are some very ancient glazed beads that modern analysis has shown to have been made with ultramarine. There are also other blue pigments used in the glaze, though, so it is possible that the ultramarine was accidentally synthesized thanks to impurities in the kiln. We do know for sure that by the 6th century CE, deliberately made ultramarine inks appear in Byzantine manuscripts. Its popularity really took off during the Middle Ages in Europe, and because so much time, labor, and travel was involved in its production and distribution, it was exorbitantly expensive. This is one of the reasons it was used with very particular significance in religious artwork. The Virgin Mary often wears ultramarine blue clothing in medieval art. And the cost and expense is also why the French Society for the Encouragement of National Industry announced a prize for whoever could make a cost-effective synthetic ultramarine in 1824. And cost-effective here meant less than 300 francs per kilogram. I got into some drama about who eventually claimed that prize because there were two uh, two people who, independently of one another, came up with the same basic process for synthetic ultramarine. Uh, and then, as often the case, artists didn't want to use the synthetic synthetic one because they thought it wasn't as good as the real one. Helet is a blue dye that's very important in the Jewish tradition. It was traditionally used to tie. Uh, blue threads used in the tassels that are in the corners of prayer shawls. This color comes from the glands of a snail, most likely heliplex trunculus. And at first, the color that this snail's secretions produce is kind of a brownish yellow. But if you soak cotton in a vat of it, so you sort of vat dye this cotton, and then let it air dry in the sun, it turns blue. Talent is mentioned repeatedly in the Torah and often in the same context as precious materials like gold and silk. The dye was so religiously important that the methods for making it were a very closely guarded secret. This unfortunately meant that the knowledge of how to produce it was lost around the 7th century as Islamic peoples moved into the eastern Mediterranean. Modern scholars have managed to recreate how to produce this color, but there's still some debate about whether it's exactly the same as the ancient hue described in these texts. And before we talk about another dye that was definitely made from snails, we will take a brief break to talk about a word from a sponsor. And now we will get back to some of those colors that have particularly interesting and longer stories. So uh, we've already talked about some totally cost-effective widely available ways to make purple. 
But in the Roman Empire, people got a little weird about purple and one color purple in particular. As with Tellet, Tyrian purple came from sea snails, specifically Balanus brandaris, previously known as Murex brandaris. And this dye was primarily made in the city of Tyre in what is now Lebanon. Its height of popularity was during the time of the Roman Empire, and it's mentioned at least 50 times in the Christian Bible. When it's living, this snail secretes a slightly toxic mucus. That's part of how it kills its prey. And if you crack open its shell, you can puncture the mucus gland and get out a drop of that mucus. When this drop of mucus is exposed to light, it progresses through several colors on the blue-green end of the spectrum before winding up purple. It took 12,000 snails to make enough dye to dye one Roman toga. Consequently, an enormous hill of discarded shells formed outside the city of Tyre. And today, this hill has actually become usable land. It's home to houses, businesses, there's a cemetery there, and it's actually known as Murex Hill. There are still broken snail shells all around its base. That astounding 12,000 snails number is why purple dye, especially Tyrian purple dye, was so expensive and associated only with the very rich. But by the year 400, its popularity had also made these snails pretty hard to find. So it became illegal for anyone who wasn't actually part of the royal family to wear Tyrian purple because it was just too scarce. And, you know, the royal Royalty didn't want to lose their purple that they were so fond of. <laughs> both both emperors Nero and Theodosius II considered the wearing of Tyrian purple by non-royalty to be punishable by death. Following the end of the Roman Empire, the color fell out of favor and people went back to the old standbys of indigo and lichen. Now, this is one of those situations where you kind of look at what it took to make this purple and the fact that you could make purple other ways, it was really, it's not like that was the only purple that existed. <laughs> it was just the only one that was so rare that people got a little strange about how they they were emotionally invested in it. Yeah, color status becomes a whole sociological, studyable thing at that point. So eventually, people figured out how to make synthetic dyes. William Henry Perkin was an English chemist who was actually trying to synthesize quinine, which we've talked about before. It's used to treat malaria in 1856. And he stumbled across something else entirely, which was mauve dye. Uh, he, he was making this substance and it was kind of black and gross looking. And then he realized as he looked at it that it was actually kind of a pretty color in spaces, in different spaces. Um, this came to be known as aniline purple and as mauvine. And it was the first truly synthetic dye. Perkin then used his newly discovered chemical process to set up his own dye factory. And once Queen Victoria wore a mauve dress to her daughter's wedding, which was in 1858, Europe was almost instantly caught up in mauve madness. Perkin then turned his eye to all kinds of other colors, and he ended up becoming very, very rich. But he gave most of his profits away to charity. This didn't instantly put an end to natural dyes. There are still plenty of natural dyes being used even today. Many artists and artisans really resisted the idea of using synthetic colors, and at first, aniline was also very expensive. 
But the availability of synthetic dyes did really change the playing field significantly when it came to color. You know, why spend so much time and effort farming cochineal if you can just make a pretty synthetic red that's basically the same shade? And today, colors have lost some of the connotations that they carried in earlier parts of history, especially in the industrialized world. It's pretty common knowledge that in many parts of the world, blue and purple were the colors of royalty. But today, you can get a blue sweater for the same price as a brown sweater. You don't have to pay extra for a royal purple crayon. And today, people might use the colors you wear to judge your personality or your sense of taste. But in places where synthetic dyes are readily available, that doesn't actually extend to your actual social class or net worth. Colors are democratized. Anybody can have them. Yeah. And I read a really interesting paper that was about, yeah, people pretty much now will judge your color literacy, like whether they think the combination of colors you're wearing are tacky or too showy or something like that. Um, But that doesn't actually translate to how much those colors cost or what your actual social status is. Yes, it'll be, uh, you know, to borrow from Project Runway, your taste level that's discussed and not so much <laughs> yes. your social standing. Right. Uh, I also have an interesting piece of listener mail. Hooray! This is, this is from David, and it's one of those messages uh, where someone asks a question that I actually found the answer to while I was researching the podcast, but it didn't make it into the episode because I didn't want to derail us down a rabbit hole of sidetrack. So this is from David, who says, Dear Tracy and Holly, in your podcast about the Battle of Mons, you discuss a vision of angels coming to the rescue of the British troops led by a saint. I'm not well versed in mythology or history, so I wonder if this is actually the first instance of this type of story. In Robert Jordan's fantasy epic, the Horn of Valir is used to call upon the heroes of the Horn, a group of deceased legendary warriors led by a great general, Arthur Hawkwing to assist the protagonists of the story to prevail in the final battle. It was always my assumption that Robert Jordan, trained in military history at the Citadel, was borrowing from mythology for this and other elements of his story, but now I wonder if it was borrowed from the story of the Battle of Mons. Is it possible that General John Charteris, who you characterized as a propagandist, and who would also be trained in military history, may have borrowed this either from earlier military legend or from mythology? Mythology can be a powerful tool for rallying troops, something that even corporations are well aware of and used to motivate workers with outlandish or heroic stories of their founders, e.g. Steve Jobs. Are you aware of any mythological basis for this supposed event? Cheers, David. So first, uh, what this actually reminded me of when I was working on it was the Oathbreakers, um, also known as the Dead Men of Dunharrow in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, similarly, some deceased troops who are going to come back and fight and save the day uh, for the protagonists. And there is definitely a folkloric precedent for stories of some kind of supernatural or divine intervention coming to help people on the battlefield. It's pretty clear in this particular story um, that the that the story, the Bowman, was the ultimate source for something and that... Um, that John Charteris's uh, propaganda work was kind of building up that story that people were already passing around. But I read uh, a really interesting article in the journal Folklore from 2002 by a man named David Clark, which went into the whole history of wartime stories 
um, about supernatural interventions that changed the course of a battle. Uh, and so I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Similar stories can be found in the folklore and the mythology of many nations. These include the vision of the Holy Cross to the Emperor Constantine before the Battle of Milovan Bridge, and the legends of King Arthur and Frederick Barbarossa, who were said to lie sleeping in caves waiting for the call to defend their country in a future conflict. In the case of the visions of Mons, an interesting avenue of investigation relates to the substitution within popular belief of King Arthur with St. George, as the identity of the figure on horseback who scatters the German cavalry. The source of this motif can be found in Matchen's story, where the soldier recalls the invocation to St. George printed upon plates in a vegetarian restaurant. Furthermore, Arthur Matchen's writings were directly influenced by the patriotic and martial traditions drawn from the mythology of Britain. Um, he then goes, goes on to talk about some other uh, folkloric stories about St. George appearing to troops uh, at different battles, um, starting as far back as the 4th century. So yes, while there's definitely a uh, historical precedent of, uh, you know, folk tales and legends of supernatural troops coming to help in a battle, um, in this particular case, it's pretty clear that it was a short work of fiction that inspired the whole thing. So thank you very much, David, for writing to us. If you would like to write to us, we are at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and we are on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. If you would like to learn a little more about what we have talked about today, you can come to our parent website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and you can put colors into the search bar. You will find an article that is called Why Do Boys Wear Blue and Girls Wear Pink? I think it's actually Girls Wear Pink and Boys Wear Blue. But it gets into the story of how we got into this gendered situation of what colors are okay for boys and girls in American culture. Uh, you can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you can find show notes and all of the episodes and lots of other cool stuff. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.